Hey folks, Randy Newberg here. Uh, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Hunt Talk Radio. Uh, today I'm going to be putting up the podcast that is part two of the series that we're doing to show our members, to show other people with media platforms that you can engage in politics. You can engage in policy and it doesn't just have to be an election year, it can be any time. But we're doing it now because everyone's mind is on politics. So earlier in this year, you heard where I had uh, a candidate for Montana governor, Greg Gianforte, on the podcast. And today, uh, the opponent is the incumbent governor, uh, Steve Bullock. And we're just letting both candidates have their chance to tell viewers how they see issues in Montana, in the West. And hopefully, as you listen to this, you understand how you as a citizen, you as an advocate for public lands, for access, for hunting and fishing, how you can engage in process, even if you don't have a platform like I do. Or if you do have platforms like I do, I hope you'll take the time and effort to engage the policy leaders in your state or in your region, maybe nationally if your platforms are that large. Because this is really important stuff. It's important in election years, and it's important after election years because we're still creating policy. We're still doing these kind of things even after the elections are done. But before Governor Bullock joins us, I just want to quickly let you know who the three great partners are that, that make this podcast possible. Onyx Maps. Uh, those of you who watch our show know that I use the Onyx Map system. As they say, hunt smarter. And when you're a dumb guy like me, you need everything to make you smarter. And uh, the Hunt 3.0 app, the, uh, the GPS chips, all the stuff that you can get from Onyx Maps certainly makes a dumb guy like Randy a whole lot smarter. Um, other product that we use that you've heard us on, we had Damon Bungard on a podcast just recently from Orion Coolers. Uh, great coolers. Uh, everything you'd look for in a high-quality cooler is there with Orion Coolers and Go to oriancoolers.com, check them out. I'm sure you'll be impressed with what you see. The other group, and those of you who've been signing up on the Go Hunt Insider website, uh, you've been getting not only a ton of information, but out on our Hunt Talk website this week, one of our Hunt Talk members who signed up announced, hey, guess what? I'm one of the guys who won one of the brand new rifles they're giving away out on Go Hunt. And Go Hunt has this insider system that has drawing odds. It has explanation about all the state processes. It has everything you need to be, as they say, your own hunting consultant. When you go to Go Hunt and you want to become a subscriber to their insider service, use the promo code HUNTTALK. And when you do, you're going to get a free Gerber Vital Blade, the, the scalpel replaceable blade knife, the Vital from Gerber just by signing up as an insider at Go Hunt. So those three great sponsors make this possible. With no further delay, you're going to hear me and Governor Steve Bullock get into a discussion about hunting, fishing, public access, and all the things important to those of us who, well, if you're listening to this, I'm sure it's important to you. Thanks for listening. Hey folks, Randy Newberg here with another episode of Hunt Talk Radio, or as some of you have come to know it, Randy Newberg Unfiltered. But I don't think I have to go unfiltered today. I am in Helena, Montana. Uh, I'm following up on part two of 
of a previous episode where we talked uh, about how those of us with media platforms and those those of you listening need to be engaged in policy issues. And so today, my guest, I'm very lucky that this very busy person, Governor Steve Bullock of Montana, took some time to talk with me and our viewers. Welcome, Governor. It's great to be with you today, Randy. And uh, I, I apologize. Our, our original plan was we were going to go and do this outside, out at a fishing access site right here within view of the Capitol. Yeah, we had hoped to, uh, if the weather hadn't uh, kind of thrown us that curveball, wanted to do, do it out at a prickly pear fishing access site. And this yeah. is one of 11 new access sites just in the last, I guess, two and a half, three years. Uh, but it is the closest to downtown Helena or the capital. It's only yeah. a few miles away. It's something that I've been out with my kids and my family. It's a pretty neat site for being just a stone's throw away from our state capital. Yeah. I mean, I'm trying to think, are there any other state capitals where you could, on your lunch break, probably go out and wet a line, right? Just, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. maybe, uh, maybe the Potomac and the U.S. capital, but uh, those it, fish wouldn't be quite like they are in the prickly pear. No, I, I don't <laughs> think you'd want to do that. But <clears throat> that that's a really good start to this discussion. Um you, you mentioned these fishing access sites, and uh, Montana has what's known across the country as one of the best stream access laws, if you're an angler. And there's been other states recently where they've rolled back. You bet. Like, like Utah has really done some crazy things with rolling back their stream access. And I think... He, and for the sake of our audience, prior to becoming governor in 2012, you were the attorney general for four years, and you worked in the AG's office prior to that. And so does this mean I can't tell attorney jokes today? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you can always tell attorney jokes. I just uh, won't tell any accountant jokes. Okay. Well, I'll I'll try to moderate that. But <clears throat> anyhow, it, in the legislature in Montana and in legislatures across the West, we're seeing uh, what I would, I don't know if you want to call them attacks, or at least efforts to weaken the public's right to their streams, to their wildlife, to other stuff. And in your time in the attorney general's office, I think there were some, some cases that came forward that maybe you can give us a background of how stream access law, what, you know, how no, you it's bet. predicated, what, what's it all about and, and why is it how it is? No, you bet. And in, large measure, um, as I say to kids visiting the Capitol and things, it were the, those laws that really got me engaged in politics. Now, my professional career, I've been about half public, half private sector as far as being a lawyer. I mean, where we gathering today, where we're kind of right on the edge of my paper route growing up. So <laughs> literally, you know, and it's interesting in as much as that three blocks higher south from where we are, was it for Helena. So the, those okay. hills were just places that as a kid, I'd go and hike around and spend a lot of time out at the Gates of Mountains. Um, while that's been developed, we have great public lands all around, mm -hmm. uh, all around town. But when I was a young lawyer in the Attorney General's office, there was a group called Mountain States Legal Foundation. Out of Denver. Yep. Yeah, we're going to talk about them later on. Too. Oh, good. Because <laughs> they were actually, though, they brought a suit to overturn um, our stream access laws. 
So I'm in federal court. I get to represent and standing up in court and saying, you know, my name's Steve Bullock, represent the people of Montana. Our streams and rivers belong to all of us. Doesn't matter how big our wallet is. Made me really think this is a job that I'd love to do. So we won that case. This is when I was a staff lawyer. Also had um, the opportunity to write an attorney general opinion about recreational access from bridges. So this right. is yeah, that's one that's the, we're still yeah. haggling about. Yeah, Montana. I mean we've gotten right. better. So in two thousand, a request had come in from I think it was Madison County, and the AG opinion that I wrote it was under a guy named Joe Mazurik, but said, you know, these are two public rights away, the streams and the roads. So as long as you stay within the rights away, you can have access to these rivers from from bridge crossings and their abutments. Right. So you fast forward, um, boy, that was in 2000. In 2008, I got elected attorney general. Mm -hmm. Stream access was still, you know, we'd made some great strides, but that AG opinion wasn't without some controversy. Yeah. And working with a guy named Kendall Van Dyke and Governor Schweitzer and the Republicans passed a recreational access bill, got it through the legislature. It was the first stream access bill, I think in 24 years, that put into law that AG opinion saying that, you know, and also tried to make it a little bit easier for landowners, said that we'll do some things right. near those bridges, but to say that you have a right of access from those bridges. So Montana is a place where, I mean, people come to enjoy these waterways. Right. I, I, and it is so <laughs> exciting to know that, you know, when I talk to colleagues in other states and things like that, nothing like our stream access laws. And I don't care if you're a mechanic here in town or you travel from across the country or world, you can have these blue ribbon waters and you can get access to them. Yeah. I mean, that opinion, that, that case law that brought us here has created – a level of value to our streams and to the economy and to us culturally in Montana that I wonder if when that first started, if anyone could have foreseen how public access to their public streams could have created such an economic benefit. Besides well, I, th I think that's absolutely true. I mean, I think we have 170,000 miles of streams and rivers throughout the state. And clearly some of the best fishing in the nation if not the world yeah. and i mean if you just look at montanans alone we have a million people over 147,000 square miles 2.2 million fishing days a year so 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 meaning you know and those are just <laughs> residents not right. even counting the out-of-state so right. we montanans we know that we enjoy this and it has incredible economic benefit um around the country and around the world yeah and so we, when, when we talk stream access, um, you know, and I use the reference of the state of Utah where a court said something of kind of the, the opinion was very similar to our stream access law. Then their legislature intervened and said, well, we'll just change the law. And unfortunately now in Utah, they are suffering from a, what I'd call a, a rollback of stream access benefits. And we see that in New Mexico and other yep. places as well, you bet. Yeah, and so how, 
how precarious is when when we say a stream access law? How precarious is that legislatively or judicially or whatever? I mean, is is it? Can we say, hey, we accomplished that and just walked away from it as hunter hunters no. and anglers and say, oh, this is how it's going to be forever? By no means. Uh, I mean, I look at this just from the first time I had a case to today and what's been 16, 18 years fighting, but all, always recognizing you got to be vigilant yeah. because we are one piece of barbed wire first on the individual level away from being blocked from one of these streams and rivers. But then we're also legislatively, don't kid yourself that there are measures that get introduced every now and again, trying to chip away and erode. And the real concern for me is also, I mean, there are some absolutes from where I sit. Our stream access laws are one of them, our public lands are another. And you have two concerns. One, one is that the folks will just say, all right, this is going away, that's less likely than chipping away and eroding and kind of changing the fundamental tenets of what this is. And that's why as sportsmen, as recreationists, we have to be vigilant. I mean, if we are not, we could lose those things that mean so much to our economy, but really also mean so much about our quality of life and why I want to raise my kids here. Right. Uh, And I think a lot of our viewership is, well, the the listeners are all hunters and anglers, and and what you just said there is not a Montana centric concern. I don't care if you're talking about the book cliffs in Utah, if you were talking about your favorite stream in Colorado, or you're talking about the Boundary Waters in Minnesota, or whatever it is. What we have today can't just be walked away from as you said vigilant in its defense and in it's an area where truly i mean i don't care if you're republican democrat libertarian vegetarian (laughs) if you care about these sort of issues if you care about our heritage if you care about getting out and enjoying these lands that's where party labels and things have and should have no place right because this is not only about today it's, I mean, I was raised on the Missouri River from a gas boy out of the gates of the mountains. That's my summer job. I was a tour boat driver, lived out there um, most summers during uh, high school and college. Yeah. And I want to make sure that my kids and my grandkids and every, you know, generationally have those same opportunities that I did that weren't dependent upon my parents being of means or anything like that it was just provided those opportunities yeah and so it is for today but it's also for the generations to come too that we have an obligation as sportsmen to make sure that we don't lose those laws especially in montana yeah and when you say for the future theodore roosevelt he always talked about those yet unborn yeah those within the womb of time yeah and uh I think that's one thing that's always helped hunters and anglers or conservationists is it's not always been about tomorrow. It's been a horizon way, way further yeah. than that. It's 
it's generations ahead and, and you talked about it and well, if my see. son my son would give me some grandkids i'd be talking about my grandkids <laughs> but right now he's he's holding off so how old is he Randy? 26 yeah so i better be quiet my when i get home my wife will really lay it to me about well, you shouldn't be saying that on a podcast but. well i think of even uh this winter my youngest is nine okay so it was cam's his first time to go out you know, chasing deer and elk with me. And, yeah, we signed a youth bill last time. Right. Um, he's still a little young for that. But just for him to be out, and he went out with me and my older brother, uh, who was down from Alaska for a little bit, and as we're teaching him about hunting. And, like, I've never seen a nine-year-old quiet for you know, <laughs> five hours straight. But it makes you realize it's a about a lot more than just yourself when you're yeah. seeing his excitement. Oh, I, it is. It's and that's people will say, well, what motivates the the activists among us? I think it's exactly what you said. Yeah. The nine year olds or the yeah. those nine month olds or those that's, someday that's be right. nine year olds. But so I'm gonna get into the list of questions here, um, and you can take them wherever you sure. want, but. You, you almost had your Department of Tourism hat on there for a minute when you're talking about the value of our streams and such. And a year, when was it? It was a year ago. There was a public land rally here at the Capitol, and I was the MC. And there was a group from Utah who had showed up, the American Lands Council, and they had found a few sympathetic ears within our Montana legislature. And you got up and spoke at that. And here's how I'm going to connect the two. I thought you were going to use this line when you were talking about why people come to Montana to fish. You said they don't, uh, at that public land rally, you said they don't come to Montana to see our Walmarts. <laughs> Nothing against the Walmarts. So uh, the, that gets me to this whole public land idea. You bet. Um, it is a hot topic across the West, across the country. Um, right now there's one presidential candidate in his primary race in Utah, Nevada, Idaho actually took out, you know, his paid ads said that we should sell the public lands. Yeah. Uh, I, I know when I was the MC of that event last year, you were there. There's quite a few speakers there all spoke passionately about the value of public lands to Montana. Um, I'm just going to let you yeah. say what you want to say about sure. public lands. And uh, if if you have any strong thoughts about where it's going and some of these ideas that are out there. No, you bet. Well, and I think that there are two different threats to our public lands. One is gates and padlocks over public roads. And then the other is this notion that you mentioned, start in Utah, now the leader's a uh, Senator Fielder from Montana, yeah. that we should be taking those lands back. Now, when I look at, I think uh, the world according to Bullock is there's probably two great equalizers in this world. It's our public education system and our public lands. Because both of them, doesn't matter who you are, where you came from, you have the same opportunities as anybody else. The threats are there um, with Gates. Uh, as attorney general, I brought a couple lawsuits. One of them had to do with Tenderfoot near the Smith River. 
Right. And when we were working so hard on getting all these lands, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation was involved in it. Yep. And somebody said, you know what? I'm putting up basically, I think it was 8,000 acres yeah, was. that he was going to put a lock over a road. On a county road. Yeah. So that's that's one where I was attorney general and said, hell no. <laughs> and we brought a lawsuit to get rid of that. Right. Another one on the other side of uh, the state uh, in Terry, the East Montana mm-hmm. Badlands, there's a scenic view road, it's called, that yep. people have gone to forever. Right. Um, and then somebody came in and just said, I'm putting a gate up and there's no longer access there. Yeah. So when we have to resort, I mean, you're, we're joking about lawyers at the beginning. You should never have to actually resort to make sure to a court of law just to open up a county road. Right. But when we do, that's a threat that we got to be vigilant about and we got to be willing to bring those actions. So that's one. And then the other is this idea of land transfer. And that's what, as you said, a presidential candidate and others are saying that, well, maybe we're not satisfied with how the feds are dealing with the land all the time. So maybe we should just take it all back to the states. Let me be unequivocal in my perspective. Not on my watch. <laughs> okay. Not a chance. And I'll tell you why. Because at the end of the day, a lot of that, I think, really does start to come down to folks saying that um, those lands wouldn't always stay in public hands. Yeah, history has proven that. History has proven it time and time again. And I'd also say, you know, I know that you had my opponent um, – on an earlier podcast and you know he said on the one hand okay i would not be transferring those lands but then a couple weeks later in the newspaper said well no it's not attainable at this time and there's also has given money to groups like americans for prosperity and the heritage foundation free that have supported that from my perspective it's always going to be the same no matter who i'm talking to where I am because there's tremendous economic value in that as we talked about the Walmarts. I mean, we're a state of 1 million. We have 11 million visitors that come to Montana each and every year. Economic impact, $3.6 billion. If we just look at the sportsmen, economic impact, about $1.3 billion. Which is heavily connected to public public access to streams and land. Yep. And as an individual, I enjoy them. But also, as those 11 million visitors are coming, they enjoy them as well. Now, we can always work on getting the feds to manage lands better, and we need to stand up to the feds. And I'm happy to talk about areas where we've both stood up to them and also said we can work better. But but the idea really can't be. And that's another area where um, I think that the sportsmen, I mean, I— Last July, I named it Open Lands Month. First governor mm-hmm. ever do that, a month long of Open Lands Month to celebrate what we have here. So we can both be concerned about the threat, but then we can also affirmatively stand up and say, these lands are part of our heritage, they're part of our economic base, they're part of our generational transfers and beliefs, and we can celebrate those each and every day, and we ought to, and that way, affirmatively saying that whether you're a hunter, whether you're a hiker, whether you're a snowmobile rider, whether you are so many folks in Montana dependent upon tourists and people coming, 
it is so important to all of us. And unequivocally, from my perspective, as long as I'm governor, public lands will not be transferred, not on my watch. <laughs> uh, at my house, <clears throat> when something's really important, my wife and I say cold, dead hands. <laughs> and uh, meaning, kind of paraphrasing Charlton you Heston, bet. say you can have these guns when you pry them from my cold, dead hands. And, and when it comes to public lands, most of the people I encounter in the West in in the West, seventy percent of hunters primarily use public yeah. lands. That's a cold dead hands issue, and one of the groups that has come out, and I'm going to make reference back to them because you mentioned them earlier, is in Denver Mountain States Legal Foundation. Their president of their group, also an attorney. Uh, no, no. The other side, <laughs> though. So I was fighting against that group. <laughs> they uh, they actually came out and said, you know what, it's time to just sell these lands. And so all this argument about, oh, transfer and everything else, to me is like this smokescreen disguise for what the end goal is. And, and I think the Mountain States Legal Foundation, who has produced James Watt, Secretary of you Interior, bet. produced Gail Norton, who was Secretary of Interior, for them to just come out and say, let's sell these. To me, it's kind of like, all right, they're, they're done screwing around. They, 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 they want to get down to business here. Let, let's get these sold. Well, yeah, in some ways that's refreshing, right? Because, yeah, because the rest of it, and I talked about erosion earlier, erosion of our stream access rights and things like that. I mean, let's actually look at what the genie behind the curtain is. Right. And it's not just about managing these lands better. It's actually ultimately exactly what they're saying. Those lands get transferred. Ultimately, they are going to get out of public hands. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be about how much money you have, whether you're hunting whether you're hiking, whether you're snowmobiling on those lands. Camping. When we lose that, we have lost a big piece of what it means to be a Westerner. Certainly a big piece of what it means to be a Montanan. Yeah. So speaking of better land management, if I were to believe what I read in the Montana newspapers, you are like this crazy anti-wild lands guy because... You have recommended a bunch of logging sales in certain areas, and and I come from a logging family. So, in the sake of full disclosure, my brother is still a logger. Um, but yeah, my dad, I was the oldest, and my dad said, "You know what, son? You're the worst logger I've ever seen. You need to figure out how to go to college because you aren't going to make it." So I followed his advice, but my brother got suckered into it, and he's still logging. But anyhow, the, the reason I bring that up is you, you've been getting a lot of heat from some groups because of there was some federal kind of collaborative work sure. that said, you know what, the governor can go and select certain areas that would be good candidates yeah. for logging. Is it well, something you well, well, even, yeah, even before— that happened. I mean, it, this was a couple of years ago. One right. of my frustrations was I mean, forest health includes both timber management practices. It includes watersheds. You know, it yep. includes if we want to keep habitat for all those critters that you love chasing, yep. um, we've got to have healthy forests. And tying back to the Ken Ivory or the, you know, Lands Council or now the Jennifer Fielder, one of their real beefs is, look at all the fires we're having. We ought to be doing a heck of a lot better. Now, I agree. We ought to be doing a heck of a lot better on our federal lands. As governor, I managed 5.2 million acres of state lands, public lands. I think the timber sales that we do 
provides pulp for our mills, puts logs on trucks, and keeps healthy forests. But it's a lot easier just to yell at the right. federal government. Right. So and what we've done is I mean, we've taken a number of steps. Started this folks, forest and focus initiative, for one, and saying that I'm going to dedicate state resources at times, like I've more or less embedded somebody, a state employee, <laughs> into <laughs> to the Federal Forest Service yeah. and said she, her name's Mo, is going to help actually bridge some of these gaps. We've taken state dollars and put them into federal. We're the only state in the country that actually signed a stewardship agreement that said this might be a federal, um, you know, it's on federal lands, it's a federal project, but we'll bring state resources and we'll actually then take some of the dollars. Mm -hmm. Through the farm bill that was passed, had the opportunity to designate 5.1 million acres of our state lands, our federal lands, more or less, that would be prime for doing some movement as far as t forest timber management, management. forest management. Yeah. And I think the proof's in the pudding in some respects. So this bill came out two years ago, northern region more than any other region. Of the Forest Service, yep. Re region one. Yep, region yeah. one, 22 projects, 18 of those are in Montana. So we are, it takes a while to move things. And we also have to recognize, and that's been one of the great things, Western governors, this idea of fire borrowing. You know, now the Forest Service, about half of its budget goes to putting out fires. Yeah. Now, I will never be an apologist for them, but we have, as Western governors have said, this doesn't work because right. that means they're not managing the lands. We've actually been able to do some great things working with the federal government, saying that we'll provide some of the resources. The Force and Focus Initiative, I mean, 15 projects we've been doing, and that's our state initiative that um, goes along with the feds. It said retains about a thou over 1,000 jobs because we're keeping our mills going. I mean, you could always do better with supply, certainly, but also we're protecting our forest health. Yeah. So that's something where, look, anything you learn quickly in a job like this, you're going to get criticism for just about anything. <laughs> no good deed but, goes but, unpunished. Yeah, but it's important, and it's also important to reward because where a lot of those projects are happening, folks on the ground are working together, folks that used to not work together. Right. That's from the mill owner, the logger, the conservationists. They're all rolling up their sleeves and saying, in a collaborative effort, we want forest health. We want the jobs, both from recreation and to, from the logs on trucks, and we can do this in a way that's environmentally sustainable. Right. And it's a heck of a lot better than just saying, well, we're not going to do anything, or we're going to yell at the federal government. There's going to be fires. More of the Forest Service's budget is going to go for that. Yeah. Well, if I listened to the American Lands Council, I was of the belief that if trees stood on state land, they didn't burn. They only burn yeah. if they're on federal land. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, when you listen to their argument, it almost sounds like that's what they're trying well, to convince people of. Oh, if you transfer these lands, there won't be any more fires. Well, and that's, you know, you know it's, it's interesting in some respects because right now I'm vice chair of the Western Governor Association, uh, Matt Mead in Wyoming's chair. Yep. And he's been doing a lot on Endangered Species Act. Uh, so I take over chair this summer. Mine is going to be on forest management. And to say, I can't wait for, you know, if, if I as governor waited for Washington, D.C. to do things, nothing would get done. 
So we've actually brought people together here. And there's also some other promising practices in other states that we can highlight to say we can work together. At times, we can work with the Forest Service to get more projects done and also to try to build the pipeline so that our mills and everybody else knows what the future looks like. Yeah. A little bit of security as far as predictability. No, that's of exactly the future right. Is, is Any helpful. sort of degree of predictability will certainly help them. It also helps with our overall management of, you know, we we did uh, when I got in in 2013 because we used to always what would happen is we'd have fire season, and the legislature would come next time, and you could have like 40 million dollar bar tab that you have to start out <laughs> paying that before you can invest in education or anything else. I said, like, this is no way to run a state. So we have a fire fund now that has north of $50 million in it. Mm -hmm. And that is set up basically to take care of the fires. And then we've also put in, I don't know, about $5 million now into uh, projects on state, federal, tri or federal, tribal, and private lands as well to get some logs on trucks. Yeah. But to think about the way that the feds operate, is said, okay, well, whatever it costs for the fire season, you're just going to take it out of your existing budget so you can't be doing as much land management. It makes no sense. Hopefully one of these days they'll follow what we're doing here at home. And that, where you say that, for our listeners, what, what the governor's talking about is Congress appropriates the Forest Service budget of however many billion dollars, and they do not fund wildfire disasters separately. They tell the Forest Service, you have to take that wildfire disaster funding out of your operating budget. And so if it's a really big fire year in the West, like we've been seeing yep. every year, there goes everything for roads, for timber sales, for, for all the other things. So the about Forest half Service of their budget now is spent fire borrowing. Right. What would have been used for roads, for timber, for, for trails, thinning, for everything else everything. is now used for fighting fires. Yeah. It makes no sense. That's why at times, like I've said, all right, what are, what are your obstacles, Region 1, for getting a project? Is it that you don't have a biologist? Well, then I'll try to provide resources right. to get that done. But ultimately, we ought to do it in a way where... We can get work done on the ground, keep our forests healthy, and put out the fires. Because if we did all that work up front, you know, right. hopefully there'd be at least a bit less fires, yeah. too. And, and people on our podcast have come to learn that when Randy hears the word, the damn feds, I'm talking about Congress. Yeah. I'm not talking about the local secretary down at the Forest Service yeah. office. She doesn't control the budget for the Forest Service, but... Anyhow, I'm going to let you uh, go wherever you want with this question. It was a, a similar question, what I asked uh, on the podcast with your opponent. Sure. And you talked about collaborative efforts. Um, and you talked about Governor Meade being the chair of the Western's, uh, Western, Gov Governor's Western Governor's right Association. Yeah. Um, I think he showed some, some leadership uh, on sage grouse. Um, I think Montana showed leadership on sage grouse. And we lucked out last September, 2015, we were all sitting there on pins and needles worried that we were going to get a listing or a determination from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service that they were going to list sage grouse yep. as an endangered species. Um, 
personally, I, it's one of the prouder moments I, I have as someone who's involved in landscape conservation because I, I've never seen a, pro, a an effort like I saw on sage grouse yeah. of people trying to avoid and, and work hard and collaborate. So I, yeah. I know Montana had a big part in that. And you, well, well yeah. And um, if you called Matt Mead, he'd say, were it not for what Montana did, this bird would have been listed. And I'll tell you why, because in some respects, uh, Governor Mead in Wyoming had done work for several, several years. When I came into office in 2013, we hadn't done anything in Montana. Mm-hmm. On the one hand, it's a lot easier to yell about, you know, the damn feds, or it's a lot <laughs> easier not to try to bring people together. Right. But what you have is between, of all the Western states, Montana and Wyoming have the most birds. Mm-hmm. And we're second most, but we actually have more birds, most of our land is where the sage grouse are, is on private land. Right, right. So this, from my perspective, is an example of federal overreach. Like you said, I was pretty pleased when, when that was announced. I was actually there with Matt Mead, with Brian Sandoval, governor of Nevada, with John Hickenlooper, governor of Colorado, and me saying, we figured out a way to do this. And how we did it is um, anytime from, so shortly after taking office first, I formed a commission, did an executive order and said, let's do some work on this to try to put together a program. We looked at what Wyoming did and Wyoming had done a heck of a lot of work on it and it made sense. So we modeled a lot after that, but anytime that you can have the Audubon Society, stock growers, petroleum association, all standing up together saying, we will work together and we'll all give a little bit because both to protect the bird, but to protect our way of life. Yeah. And from my perspective, um, no, there were some frustrations and still, uh, I think the Bureau of Land Management has ways to go. And once they see what our Montana program is and how it's actually working and operating, I sure hope that they'll do a little bit better by us. But we found a way, while it's still easier to yell at Washington, we actually found a way to sit around a table, roll up our sleeves, and get the hard work done to make sure that ultimately the sage-grouse is not only protected, but our quality of life, our ability to use these working landscapes. And got a legislature who doesn't always want to, you know, they chipped in about 10 million bucks here in Montana that we can then use with NRCS dollars and things to, to incentivize the private landowners to help protect the bird as well. So given where walking in we could have been, I mean, our lifestyle in the Western states where the sage grouse would have been substantially, substantially different Huge. had this bird been listed. And I don't think people quite understand that because you, you don't, I, I think it's hard to, envision what could have been even if it didn't happen we're talking 70 million acres in the inner mountain west yeah would yeah. have been the core sage grouse habitat you think about what happens of how we live our lives and yes yeah, for your listeners core acres. would mean essentially no activity right <laughs> yeah yeah and so uh, i did a full podcast on sage oh, grouse great. actually and and I, I was really worried because I thought, yeah. you, 
you think about how much work, well, I was worried for two reasons. One, how complicated life would become, but also it, I knew how much work had went into it in the last decade among many states, collaboratively among the states, among public and private, among different agencies. And if all of that would have been kind of thrown back in their face and said, well, that's not good enough, boy, it would have been a disincentive to collaborate. To continue to work together. And, you know, it's, uh, I think that it is one where people of all stripes can look and say, we came together, we figured out a way to get it done, and it'll impact long going in the future. You always hear about the problems. I mean, nobody's probably calling in or talking to you about the Arctic grayling as another example. (laughs) Well, that Arctic grayling in Montana is one where we work together, private landowners, the state, the feds, and the fish didn't get listed. Right. I mean, now, those successes aren't every day, but when they are. That, that's a really good example because Arctic grayling are native to Montana. Yeah. And the big hole, those landowners, those ag producers down in the big hole made some big changes to their way you of bet. doing things to the benefit of this fish. To, yep, to the benefit of their that fish. And then ultimately, just like with the sage grouse, presumably... So to the benefit of the fish, to the benefit of themselves long-term because right. they're managing it. Right. And they are ultimately, I mean, these public trust animals across the board are going to be managed at the state level. There won't be the federal restrictions. And it was these landowners who all came together and said, we're willing to give a little on in-stream flows. We're willing to give things to make sure that we can stay in control. So... Exciting, just yeah. as the sage grouse is. Yeah. So we just talked about two really great things that we all smile about, but there's got to be some part of being governor where you, I mean, is there a day that goes by where you don't get a call about fishing game issues? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, when you walk down the street, do people want to talk to you about tax issues or in a state like Montana, do they want to talk to you about yeah. hunting and fishing? As I said, I probably hear more about fish, wildlife, and parks certainly than I do about even what the Department of Revenue does. And you know, <laughs> it's great in so many ways that people are damn passionate about their wildlife. There's always going to be competing interests, competing interests mm-hmm. at times between sportsmen and landowners, federal government issues, others. And that's been going on, presumably, especially in the Western states and especially in the states that really adhere to the North American model all along. As I look at that, I've often said there are two ways to become a wildlife biologist if you're in Montana. One is you go, you get your degree, you might get your master's. And then the other is you run for office. Because <laughs> you have no idea how many folks in office think all of a sudden that they're biologists, that yeah. they've got the science. And we have to stay science-driven. I mean, let's, let's think about near and dear to your heart, elk. Elk, yeah. I mean, I mean there, there's how many legislators up there? 150 of them, and every one of them think they got a master's degree. People are degree. passionate about it, and elk is such an important asset. Even this last legislative session, I mean, we have areas in our state, um, certainly where we're over objective 
on elk populations, meaning more elk than carrying capacity. So our legislators had passed a bill that said, all right, there's now going to be shoulder seasons. Right. And for our audience, shoulder seasons don't mean you hunt them with something on your shoulder. It's it's that you have a main season, which you can think of as your head, and then you have seasons before and after the main season that are kind of the shoulders. Where you can manage elk on private lands and other areas as Customize well. Customize. Yeah. For the- yeah. And I've ultimately ended up vetoing the bill again because science needs to be guiding this, not a majority of legislators saying, well, let's have hunts here and here and here. That's no way, from my perspective, to take care of this public trust asset. And what we did then, ultimately, is um, my reason for veto and what I said is the commission has the authority. I'm going to ask and task the commission to take a good look at this. We had a uh, pilot season near White Sulphur, you know, I think three districts uh, this last winter. Mm-hmm. Incredible demand in as much as, boy, I think I went down, I was on the ground there, over 600 calls a day were coming in. Yeah. But also um, the ability to really, I think, provide a decent hunt, provide some management in a way that we can learn a lot from. Now, it's only one tool in a toolbox. And we have to look at everything. Ultimately, we can be encouraged. We have to look at everything to make sure to both preserve the elk, meet our objectives. Uh, But as a result, I think uh, the commission approved 43, 44 districts for shoulder season next year. All right. And I look at Montana. We're, We're not too different than maybe Wyoming and Colorado in the the eastern part of our state is heavily private. As you go west, it becomes heavily public. And it is kind of this transition from a heavy private base to a heavy public base. And it's, let's face it, there's competing uh, priorities, competing needs. When you're talking about wildlife in a state like Montana, that is two-thirds public or a state like Colorado or Wyoming that is half public, or I'm sorry, Montana is two-thirds private, one-third public. Um, the other two states I mentioned are each about half public and private. You, you really, how, how do you go about crafting solutions when you have differences in land use and land ownership? Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think there's another example. It's always easier just to yell than actually roll up your sleeves and try to figure out how to get these things done. Um, shortly after taking office, and I don't know, recall if it had been dormant for eight or 12 years, but we used to have a private lands public wildlife council. Right, PLPW. Yep, where we'd get sportsmen and women, landowners together and say, ultimately, these are, and I have a few kind of core principles of this dealing with our public lands and our public wildlife, but this is public wildlife. We want to try to figure out ways to have accessibility while respecting private property rights. Um, so I've asked to ask that commission to work on some of these issues. Now I can go back to the white sulfur area as well last winter, because part of it can happen with commissions. Part of it is a cup of coffee at a farmer's, you know, house 
And we opened up last year, just in that area, 35,000 new acres opened for the general season, 150 cow elk, 30 bull elk were killed in new block management areas. You know, we have 1,200 land owners, 7.3 million acres of private lands in block management. Yeah. These can be intractable issues and certainly people will be frustrated at times. <laughs> the beauty about fish, wildlife and parks is that everybody's going to be mad at them at times for sure. Always. But yeah. if we recognize too, that science has to drive the decisions and try to get folks around the table, private landowners, what do you need? Sportsmen, what do you need? Recognize not everybody's going to get their needs met, right. but this is so important to all of us that we got to check our tempers at times. We have to be guided by science and figure out ways to move forward. I think that's what we're going to do and doing with the shoulder seasons. That's what we're doing as we see areas of block management being opened up. And we got to look at all of the tools to move this forward because it's too important. I mean, we're fortunate in some ways in Montana. I think that, you know, and I think all sportsmen worry about sort of the drop-off. Like yeah. kids are going to spend more we time do. on their computer games and things. We're still seeing good numbers yeah. of our hunters and our anglers. Yeah. But they have to have access to quality places to hunt. We have incredible public lands. Um, we want to work with private landowners while respecting private property rights to try to get you know, I had great hunt outside of Butte um, this winter through block management. Yeah. And, yeah, we brought the rancher, as the guy is hunting with always does, you know, brought her bottle, said thank you for what you do, <laughs> and <laughs> had a great time. The form of currency in Montana. We won't tell everybody yeah. that, though. But, um, when you say science-based management, the antithesis of that seems to be legislative-based management. Um, I, I asked your opponent, uh, how do you stand up to bad legislation, whether it's from your party or from an opposing party or a sponsor from yeah. an opposing party? Because, let's face it, politics is not as cut and dried as this is. One domino affects sure. many other dominoes. You bet. So how do you keep the integrity of science-based management as governor when you have a legislature that very often goes home to the coffee shop and someone says, I don't care about that biologist. This is what I want. Well, and, and for me, that is a bedrock principle in this, is that, and I say to fish, wildlife, and parks, I say to sportsmen, I say to private landowners, Science is going to dictate here because it's important for today and for tomorrow for these animals. So how do I do it? Um, I'm pleased that I can look at so many areas where I can get our legislature to work together. I mean that Montana's the most fiscally prudent state in the country. We do some good things by bringing Democrats and Republicans together and moving the state forward. Now, I won't agree with everybody on everything. I don't always agree with my wife on everything. <laughs> but if you make it clear that science needs to guide this, the, the elk shoulder seasons was a great example where the legislature is saying this is where you'll be hunting. 
Well, again, the only wildlife biology degree they got was getting elected. So let's (laughs) step back and let science guide it and stand up and say, yeah, I might get criticism because this was some legislator's bill. But then when he actually sees science work, when he sees the pilots, and then he sees, all right, we can extend to certain districts because of objectives. We can't manage these animals by political majority rule. I mean, it's just, it makes no sense long-term by any means. It's one of the seven tenets of the North American model of wildlife conservation is science-based management. So No, I think that's right. And and that's like, if if I look at sort of my absolutes in this area, which I think I've made pretty clear all throughout, not just the public, but also to my coworkers and the people at the professionals at Fish, Wildlife, and Parks, I mean, it's probably three different areas, one of which is certainly I want science to guide this, not passion, not politics, two of which any time that we can work to expand access, we ought to, and we ought to fight against any restrictions of access, and three, that these are public trust animals. They are owned by the state in trust for all of the people, and we need to manage them that way, and I don't want erosion of the North American model here in Montana because, as we've seen in a lot of states, yeah. Once you once you deviate, from once that it's path, gone, it's gone. Yeah. So, speaking of science-based management, unfortunately, elk always seems to generate a lot of interest in Montana. I I, I can't think of any elk camp I go to where. It's not, I, I, I shouldn't sure. even say elk camp. I could go to fish camp and they talk about elk hunting. So we have a state uh, elk management plan uh, that was a two to three year project FWP worked on. Um, I think it got kind of signed off in 2005 or 2005, six, I think five, it was, okay. yep. So we're now entering the 11th year of that plan. Um, do you see that plan getting revisited? Yes, I reopened? do. Okay. Yeah, I do. I, I mean, a couple different things. One of which is like an elk management plan. It's not like a business plan, right? Mm-hmm. It Meaning you're not creating something to go harvest these. You're actually right. to manage and take care of the species. I think in the past, uh, these plans have been 10 to 12 years. But 10 to 12 years is a heck of a long time. Right. So I expect them to start the process early next year in 2017. Okay. In some ways, you know, could have got moving this year, but by the same token, wanted to see um, what the results were of our pilots and the shoulder season work. But we're going to expect a lot out of everyone as we reopen that plan because if past history is any guide, this is something that, we'll be working on that will guide right. us for at least a decade. Yeah, I, I see, I look at Wyoming, I look at some of the other states, and they revisit their plans every five to eight right? years. And they really protect the integrity of that plan. Yeah. And I look at how much energy we spend fighting over elk in Montana. And I think it's because at times maybe we've deviated from that plan and maybe we didn't put enough upfront uh, effort into 
all stakeholders you bet. saying, all right, we're no, like you said earlier, no one's going to get everything they want, but we're all going to get something we want. And so they know that there's this process where they're going to review. And, and uh, so in the interim, between those reviews of their plans, they don't seem to spend quite as much uh, harangue Is that right? as, as we do in yeah. Montana. And, and I didn't know that until I got put on the board of the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. <laughs> but, uh, and I'm not a biologist, but it seems like our 220,000 members think I am. They say <laughs> that's, that's... Either that or they're biologists because they, they think it should be the Randy Newberg Elk Foundation and, <laughs> and I should do whatever they want me to do. But Well, uh, I'll suck you into helping as we... Uh... And a whole host of others as we work to put together that plan next year because it is, um, I mean, I think as you say that you put together a good one and you base it on science. Yeah. It ought to be something that not everybody will be pleased. There's no way to please. And such, and it, again, it is so great that people are passionate because if we ever lose our passion, that's when the wildlife loses. The, wild, the wildlife loses, wild or we're going to lose our public lands. Yeah. We're going to lose it all if we don't have that intense passion about something that is core to so many of us. Yeah. Um, but we also have to work together and realize that passion can't guide all our decisions. Because if passion guided all our decisions, <laughs> there's certain districts where there wouldn't be any animals because <clears throat> the passion of hunting would be all there. So yeah, well. We we might operate like DC if we if we did <laughs> yeah. that. But, uh, so it, in a legislative session, and I see this across the West, every session, and, and fortunately in Montana, we meet for ninety days every two, two years, years, and we all wish the joke in Montana is we wish we met for two days every <laughs> ninety years, but a lot of these states have annual sessions. And there are a lot of wildlife-related bills that, that come up in these sessions. Um, and, and not just wildlife bills, gun ownership bills, a whole lot of stuff like that. Um, fortunately, in Montana, uh, 2011, we had over, I think, 200 wildlife bills. 2013, we had 200 wildlife bills. Last session, we only had 100. And I, I didn't realize that we had it that bad in, in Montana. And I was talking to one of my Colorado friends, and he's like, "Oh, it's the same down here." And so I, I don't know. Maybe you, you you've enlightened me a little bit there when you said getting elected to office gives you this degree in wildlife <laughs> biology or wildlife management. Maybe that explains a lot of this. I think but good. Um, you can't be a politician or an elected leader in Montana with talk without talking about. Guns, you bet. firearms. Um, I, your opponent, I gave him kind of the open mic to say what he wanted to say about the Second Amendment and, and firearms. Yet. Yeah, it, and I think I heard him saying, no friend of guns or something like that. I mean, when he was off making money, I was actually the guy that stood up on behalf of Montana and said the Second Amendment is a personal right. And as Attorney General, you get to decide what, areas that the state weighs in and we were part of the heller decision uh, the second amendment's important for so, so let, let's make sure the audience understands the heller decision it was a, a u.s supreme court case when was it 2009 u.s supreme court yeah 2009 2010 okay right around there it it, it affirmed the right of of people 
citizens owning firearms yeah. for, for multiple purposes. And ma- made clear that it was an individual right, right. not just about militias and things right. like that. And early in the uh, my term as attorney general, there was also talk about taking a look again at the assault weapons ban. And uh, I was one of, I joined a whole number of states saying, we're not going to do that because ultimately, I mean, it's a Second Amendment right. It's part of our hunting heritage. It's also part of our defense heritage, right. personal defense. Now, that doesn't mean that there ought not be restrictions at times. I can think of, in this last couple legislative sessions, uh, certainly silencers are now allowed in Montana as a result of a bill that I signed. There's confidentiality in uh, permit holders, uh, concealed permit, because of a bill that I signed. There's actually dollars going into fish, wildlife, and parks because of a bill that I signed. But that doesn't mean that, from my perspective, there ought not be some restrictions, too. I mean, some are certainly constitutional, and some are... I think there was one bill on concealed carry that, you know, you could concealed carry if you could apply for a permit to carry concealed. Well... A twice convicted, you know, mentally incompetent individual could certainly apply. They would get denied. Right. We have a program in Montana that's a shall carry or shall issue permit from our sheriffs. And I also don't want to mess up the reciprocity for our state. But Second Amendment's important to all of us. And we'll continue to vigorously defend that, but also keep us in a place where Second Amendment's not worth nearly as much if we don't have our public lands or if we don't have fish, wildlife, and parks or if we don't have the Land and Water Conservation Fund. Um, And as a sportsman and as a parent, it's a right that I will certainly protect. Yeah. Well, if somebody comes to my house and sees the inventory of long guns and ammunition... Um, they're going to worry that I'm one of those doomsday preppers or something, and I'm not. Uh, I just have grown up in a gun family, a shooting family, and uh, so it's that's the beauty of living in some of these states that are, I guess, outdoor shooting or recreation-based is uh, – it doesn't even occur to me that someone that my neighbor might be worried that I have yeah. this – big amount of fire. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think that, um, I mean, we have different concerns, meaning that we're not in downtown Los Angeles. Right. Um, there's not firearms coming up from Mexico or what have you. But right. but we are so fortunate and blessed to live in a place like this. Yeah, we, <laughs> we, we are. I, and I tell people, you know what? I feel blessed to live in the United States. As crazy as the current election is <laughs> of presidential candidates, I, I have to be a little bit careful that I don't step in something there. But uh, we're we're not. I'm not going there. I'm sorry, Governor. <laughs> well, I, well, I, I need to just slow down no, because no. I was about ready to go unfiltered here. But. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but one of the things that I like is, by and large, I mean in Montana, we figured out ways to work and get things done. I mean, I think that the average Montanan, though we're all exceptional above average, uh, 
once you get outside of Helena, they're less worried about Democrats and Republicans. What do they want? They want good schools, safe community, right. knowing that you can do better for your kids and grandkids than even you, great public education system, and a great opportunity to get out and enjoy what we love about Montana, yeah. to hike, to hunt, to fish. And once, if we focus on those commonalities, you know, it's not about who wins and loses in Helena. It's about what can we do out there. And right. that's where I think we see great successes. Yeah. Well, I I, I couldn't agree more. Um, I get to travel the West, and I see some other really remarkable places yeah. similar to Montana. And it usually comes down to a collective ethic among the people. Um, and I look at in Montana, you know, if we leave Helena and we went north along that beautiful Rocky Mountain front, I try to envision what if that was a corridor of development. There? Yeah. And the reason it's not is because those private landowners there have this conservation ethic that, no, we want open space. And, and I can go to other places in the West where it's, it's similar, uh, but I can go to a lot of places in the West where it's, where it's not. not. You bet. And so I, when I get off the airport in Bozeman, I almost get down and kiss the ground yeah. and say, I'm glad I live in one of these unique places in the West that has just what you're talking about there. Um, we're, we're getting close to wrapping up here. Um, I don't want to hold you too long. You probably have a fishing appointment or something this <laughs> afternoon. Uh, are there any things that you think I, I, I'm, I'm going to go and do two points. Um, one, I'm always telling our listeners and our TV viewers that it's not enough to just go buy your fishing license or your hunting license or to send your $35 to your conservation group. Those days might have worked for my parents or whatever, but now it requires more because a lot of our issues are being brought into the public policy arena no, or into the right. legislative arena. You've been governor for four years. Um, something tells me you probably get a few emails, a few phone calls. If And this doesn't, I'm not saying this as it pertains just to you as well, governor sure. of Montana, but to any... Any of our listeners who want to engage in their policy, le uh, with, their, with their policy yeah. leaders, no matter where they may live, do you, I, I'm trying to get an answer of: Is this still a a process that people can yeah. be part of? Yeah, yeah, and I mean, look, you can look at all the money getting poured in anymore, and like in Montana, it was great bipartisan effort. We actually. Got a law passed called the Disclose Act saying if you're going to spend money in elections, you got to tell where the money comes from. It's easy to get cynical, though, as you see all the TV ads, all the money. Right. But I'll tell you, first and foremost, your voice in part is your vote. So many people say it's not even worth voting it anymore. We have legislative races in Montana and across the West that can be won by one or two votes. Yeah. Every single vote matters. And that ends your, up your voice. And if it's about public lands, if it's about public access, it's about wildlife, you need to make sure to vote those issues that, that you know, get you so fired up on the weekends <laughs> or the weeks that you take off. You got to have that same fire in voting. And second of which is that I truly, truly still believe that both in elections and in making public policy, a place like ours is still a place where people talking to people matters. 
So it's just like it's a, sometimes it's easier to yell at the federal government than it is to roll up your sleeves and figure out how to get work done. Sometimes it might be easier to yell at the newspaper or yell at the TV saying, I can't believe this is what's happening, yeah. than to roll up your sleeves and write a letter right. or to pick up a phone. But the voice needs to be heard. And I fundamentally believe that individuals, whether you're a 15-year-old or a 70-year-old or anywhere between or on either side can impact the system. But they can't impact the system if they're not willing to share their voice. I mean, the public lands rally that you and I shared, the state capital of Helena, on all of the floors you could look up, people had traveled from all across the state. And when that happens, lawmakers have to listen. (laughs) And they do listen. And they recognize, you know what? It's... It's not, I'm not going to take the easy way out, or I'm not going to just follow what this other legislator asks. I'm going to actually follow also what the people want. Yeah. Well, that's, that's good to know, because I think in today's world, we have so many events that cause us to do what you say, just kind of throw our hands up in the air. Or we say, all right, my only chance to participate is once every four years, I get to go walk into the ballot yeah. box. And Yeah, not and, enough people even do that. Right. And, and I tell people... You know, voting is one thing, but even after the election, you have three three years, 364 days to engage yourself. And I suspect those other three years and 364 days, you you're, you as a governor or, or any legislator is probably working on a lot of policy stuff that well, and a, 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 a citizen could impart their views on. And absolutely, and guess what? I go to the grocery store, I go to the church i go places everywhere where more than happy to have people share their ideas and share their thoughts yeah and the alternative is if folks aren't saying that then i think the whole system's in trouble and i'll tell you you know in some ways and maybe i was washington bashing too it's easy to get cynical to say things don't get done or frustrations there but there's also i think of uh again me Governor Mead and I, as chair and vice chair of Western Governor Association, unified effort, we went out and testified in front of a bunch of congressional hearings. Right. And we didn't go as Democrats and Republicans. Yeah. We went as two Westerners that really care about this place that we love. Yeah. And that's part of the attitude that as sportsmen, as anglers, you got to come in and say, I'm thinking about this. I'm thinking about this long term. I know I'm not a biologist. But here's where, from any individual's perspective, we ought to go or where we can't go. I think that voice matters so much in our state houses, just like it does in Washington, D.C. Yeah. Well, I've watched on TV as you guys gave some testimony. Uh, It was interesting to see. (laughs) They treated you differently than when I was there giving testimony. (laughs) But... uh, Oh, well, I, I probably had kicked their hornet's nest a little bit too much before I showed up. Um, so I guess uh, I want to wrap it up with uh, you saying whatever you want to say about all these important things to Westerners, whether yeah. it's access, wildlife, uh, you know, you, you've probably bounced on a, uh, back and forth to, to many of the points you yeah. want to make, but... Whatever you want to leave the listener with, I guess you've got the mic. 
Well, I to, sure appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. So. yeah. And I think, you know, in many respects, uh, whether you're in Wyoming or wherever you might be listening, I mean, it's exciting time in Montana from the perspective of I can look at so many different metrics. More people are working in the state of Montana than ever before in our state's history. About 10,000 jobs added last year. Can look to, we're among the fastest growing personal income. Tax Foundation says we have the sixth best overall tax climate for businesses. Record high school graduation rates. So we always want to work harder and do better from an economic perspective. And we will. Um, we've figured out great ways in Montana to work with the private sector and the public sector to try to move the state forward. But I'd also say, and it's something that we um, touched on earlier, you know, we're a state of a million people that get 11 million visitors each and every year. And they come for our clean air, our clean water, our public lands. They come to enjoy, and many of your listeners come up for that hunt or that fish that is an experience that arguably, as governor of Montana, I'd say you have no other place in the world that it can be as nice. So that's an important part of our economy. And it's premised on a number of things. And it's a number of things that we talked about. I mean, it's premised on stream access laws that are, from my perspective, the best in the nation. It's premised on making sure these incredible public lands remain in public hands. And it's premised on protecting and preserving all the things that, like I think back, and not only was wonderful to be raised here, but all the things that I want to give to my kids and pass on. And that takes vigilance, and that takes work. And it also, on some of the contentious issues that we talked about today, it takes bringing people around the table and saying, we're not all going to get everything we want, but together we can move this state and for listeners in other places, this nation forward. And I'm optimistic that we can do it. And if we don't, the stakes are way too high. Yeah. Well, man, sounds like you're running for office. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm just, I'm just a proud father, Randy. I'm a proud father of a 13, 14-year-old daughter, 11-year-old uh, daughter, and nine-year-old son that that's to me that's what it really is about too and i would say just about all of our listeners they when they engage however they do it they it's about that next generation yeah anyway, as much as we're living the good old days i think all of us say we want it to even be the gooder old days for our kids well that's right we want to make sure that it's better for our kids and grand and it can be in so many yeah. different ways but it could also be if we let some of those things erode, if we let, you know, if we start letting our public lands be transferred and sold off, or if we're not vigilant on protecting our public wildlife, um, then it could be substantially different. Yeah. Well, Governor Bullock, thanks so much for spending time with our listeners. It's great I, spending I, time with your listeners and you, Randy. I appreciate it. And uh, for all of you listening, um, thanks for for listening and uh you can get any of our stuff at our any of our platforms the tv show runs in quarters three and quarter four on sportsman's channel uh 
you can listen to this podcast if you're listening. Obviously, you've already found it. Uh, and we have our YouTube channel, uh, Randy Newberg Hunter. Uh, these podcasts get loaded up there. All of the old podcast episodes are out on YouTube. And then you can go to the Hunt Talk Forum, which is where a lot of the stuff that you hear us talk about in the podcast, that that is the origin of many of these questions and many of these topics. So anyhow, folks, thanks for listening. Until the next time, have a great day. <laughs>